News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Botti in Washington. Today is Tuesday, January 17, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Primary and secondary schools in two of Malawi's biggest cities reopened today, Tuesday, after closing for cholera. We had to come up with remedial measures, and the remedial measures was to make sure that they have a good, reliable source of water. We also looked at the issues of uh, hygiene facilities, the issues of uh, toilets. The outgoing chair of Kenya's Electoral Commission again calls for an investigation into attempts to undermine the board's independence. Zimbabwe opposition members appear in court following arrests for an alleged illegal meeting. The opposition leader in Uganda's parliament rejects a foreign travel ban imposed by President Museveni. The Christian Association of Nigeria condemns the gruesome murder of a cleric. Ken is not happy with the attacks on clerics. We condemn it and we ask the authorities to go after those behind this and bring them to book. And there are more killings in South Sudan's people administrative area. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Primary and secondary schools in two of Malawi's biggest cities, Blantyre and Lilongwe, will reopen today, Tuesday, for the second term of the school year. Their opening was delayed because of rising cholera cases there. Health Minister Kumbize Kandodo Chiponda is chair of the Presidential Task Force on COVID-19 and cholera. She tells me that the task force has introduced new measures, including the assessment of water and sanitation needs of schools in both cities and voluntary oral vaccines for cholera. We had postponed the opening for at least two weeks because uh, the two cities, Blood and Virongue, are like the hotspots of this cholera outbreak. And so we just wanted to make sure that uh, we put certain things in place, especially to do with water, because we are aware of cholera. It's mostly about uh, the water supply. It's also mostly to do with the hygiene and sanitation as well. So through the presidential task force, which was instituted by the president, Dr. Lazarus Chakwira, to look at COVID issues, and he assisted delegated the task force also to take up the uh, cholera outbreak issues. You mentioned water supply. Is that all part of your containment measures taken just to make sure that you don't have a repeat? Exactly. No, well, I think the main issue basically was uh, we, we have uh, uh, certain schools which uh, they've got the highest number of enrollment of students and we had to do in fact assessment of a number of other schools in the two cities. Uh, so uh, we found out that after the assessment, some of the schools, they have good supply of water, but some of them, maybe they were depending on a borehole, and some of them, the boreholes, they were broken, mostly in the rural area, because when you talk of Lerongwe, you have a few schools in the actual urban, but maybe you have even more schools in Lerongwe rural. But we did assessment of all the schools, those in the city, as well as those in the rural uh, so we had to come up with remedial measures, and the remedial measures was to make sure that they have a good, reliable source of water. We are grateful uh, to uh, the, the Ministry of Water and Sanitation 
goes through our water boards. They have managed to fix some of the pipes which were broken. They have managed to reconnect maybe some schools because of the old bills. The water supply was cut. But now, because of the cholera issue, they have reopened to say, oh, we'll sort out the bills issue later. But now, because we have this crisis, we our students, our teachers, they need water. But we also uh, looked at the issues of uh, uh, hygiene facilities, the issues of uh, toilets, issues of latrines. Some schools, they have latrines. How is the condition of the latrines? But also, most importantly, we have distributed chlorine in all the schools just to make sure that they use that uh, for the water, which uh, the students, the teachers, the caregivers are going to use chlorine. And of course, the Ministry of Education has put up in place procedures of what is it that the school has to do in terms of taking care of the students, the teachers themselves. They have also banned the sale of food within this vicinity just to make sure that, you know, we, we protect our students. The measures you measure, do they include vaccination for the students before they come back? Yes, vaccine is an extra option. You are aware that the most important thing in terms of cholera is prevention which has to be encouraged all the time. The vaccine is like an extra one. So we encourage that. We are grateful that WHO uh, supplied us with about 2.9 million doses in the country. So we have been giving that. And indeed, during this recess, uh, we were encouraging parents or guardians to make sure that the students, the pupils, the children, they should get the vaccine. And most of them have received the vaccines. Though it is not mandatory for one to get the vaccine, but we encourage the masses, especially those in the hospitals, to make sure that they get the vaccine. Minister, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Minister. Thank you so much. Kumbize Kandodo Chiponda is Malawi's Minister of Health. She was speaking with me from the capital, Lilongwe. The Christian Association of Nigeria has condemned the killing of a Catholic priest in central Niger State on Sunday and suggested that Christians might need to take up arms to defend themselves. Gunmen believed to be Islamist militants set fire to the priest's residence, burning him to death, and shot another who was fleeing the attack. Separately on Sunday, police in northwest Katsina State say armed men attack a church, abducting at least nine worshippers. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. The national spokesperson of the Christian Association of Nigeria Luminous Janamiki condemned the attack on Monday and told VOA the association was disappointed in the security system. He called on Nigerian authorities to find the perpetrators and prosecute them to prevent, quote, a situation where citizens will be asked to take up arms, end quote. Armed men Sunday burned Reverend Father Isaac Achi to death in his home in central Niger State after failing to break in. The attackers also shot another priest trying to flee the attack, but he survived. Jen Namike spoke to VOA their phone. Khan is not happy with the attacks on clerics. We condemn it and we ask the authorities to go after those behind this and bring them to book. Christians in Nigeria have been quite accommodating, quite peaceful, quite cordial with uh, people of other faiths. The motive behind the attack is not yet clear, but gunmen have frequently in the past attacked churches and killed priests, especially in the country's north. Niger State Police Command says they're investigating the killing and will make the perpetrators pay. 
In a separate attack Sunday, gunmen in northwest Katsina State kidnapped seven women and two children from a Pentecostal church during services. State police spokesperson told VOA via phone that a rescue operation is underway. The pastor was beaten uh, with stick and he sustained um, a fracture on his hand. So, so far, uh, uh, such parties are still um, making efforts. Uh, the police, in collaboration with other sister security agencies, especially the Nigerian Army and the Air Force, are making efforts with a view uh, to rescuing the victims. Nigerian authorities have been struggling to stem a wave of kidnappings for ransom just weeks ahead of general elections. The country is also facing communal clashes over land between farmers and herders, as well as attacks from Islamist militants. The violence which outgoing President Muhammad Buhari vowed to address when elected eight years ago is one of the major issues ahead of the elections on February 25th. Simfi Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Outgoing chair of Kenya's Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission, also known as IEBC, is calling on President William Ruto to launch a public investigation into attempts to undermine the independence of the board during the 2022 general elections. Wafula Chibukati spoke Monday when he unveiled the post-election evaluation report. He said the vote saw the highest number of attempts to undermine the electoral process, including state security organs lobbying on behalf of the government. Joseph Kiyoko is a Kenyan political analyst. He tells me President Ruto must institute such independent inquiry to safeguard the independence of the IEBC and democracy in Kenya. He says if left unresolved, elections will fail to alleviate doubts that the real winner has been elected. I think this is in public domain uh, because we all saw the shenanigans that were happening at the, the National Polling Center, the Bomas Hall and the delay tactics that were being employed. And of course, during the Supreme Court hearing, certain information was made known to the public of intervention by very senior members of the previous government, the National Security Advisory Council, uh, that had sent representatives to try and coerce the chairman to alter the verdict of the people. Now, in a maturing democracy like ours, had he accepted to that call, really, that would have been... Uh, a coup by all design. That will have been subversion of the will of the people. And so what he has said today brings to four rumors that every Kenyan thought was happening. He has given his side of his uh, statement. And when you read the newspaper, what he is requesting is that we form a commission of inquiry to look at whatever happened during the counting and before the announcement of the presidential results so that every side has its day to bring out its argument so that as a country we can heal and you can better prepare yourself for such an eventuality or such an happening in the next election. That's what I want to ask you. The call for the establishment of a yes. public inquiry, is that possible? Because that would be President Ruto's government that would want to do that. Is that possible the president would like to do that? It has to be done, really. When the president was addressing the nation in New Year, he said he's juggling many balls. And right now, he does not want to burden the country with the, the politics of that particular day. But, you know, it's not really about him, the person. 
It's about the institution of the independent electoral commission. It's about the institution of democracy in this country. It is about the validity of the vote in this country. So that for us to heal and progress, for there to be a loser who accepts that he has lost, and a winner who gains legitimacy by the vote, whatever happens needs to be resolved. Whatever happens needs to be brought forth. And whoever tried to subvert the will of the people needs to be brought to book. Now, what the Commission of Inquiry will do might not necessarily, is not a criminal process, but it is a process of bringing information to the public, of assigning culpability, of querying. When you say this, what do you mean? Otherwise, if you leave these statements hanging out here, what you do is that you continue uh, shrouding elections in mysteries, that there's never a clear winner in Kenyan polls. There's never a clear loser in Kenyan elections. There's always a backhand that is always influencing the Tallinn Center. So you Kenyans can go vote, but it does not matter how you vote. Here at the Tallinn Center, there's an invisible, powerful hand that will always orchestrate the results to favor a certain dynamic. So this inquiry must be constituted so that it deals with such thoughts it deals with people who might harbor such behavior or might think that they can subvert the will of the people. Joseph Kiyoko is a Kenyan political analyst speaking with us from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Tuesday, January 17. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The leader of the opposition in Uganda's parliament has rejected a foreign travel ban imposed by President Yoweri Museveni. Matthias Mpuga says the prohibition is illegal and an affront to the separation of powers enshrined in the constitution. The ban on travel for legislators and civil servants is part of an effort to save money for what Museveni says are priority areas. For more reaction, viewers Peter Clotty reached minority leader in Uganda's parliament, Matthias Umpuga. The travel of politicians cannot simply be travel in vain. Members of parliament travel to do oversight at our embassies, at government projects, government commitments, and the, the travels are properly syndicated by parliament. I have not known members of parliament travel to go to the beaches in Europe or the Americas while on official duty. So one needs to be synchronized with the whole idea of purpose. But an outright ban, a kind of decree, does not arise because it does not control parliament. Parliament is an independent institution. It has an independent budget. And it's not the business of Genome 7 to advise parliament or tell parliament and order parliament actually on how to spend their money because he cannot be the head of the executive and the head of parliament and other government uh, arms. So he's trying to impress it upon Ugandans and other agencies that he's a patron, which I reject. But I know for a fact that if he reduced the expenditure at the presidency and at state house by a third, the government will have a lot of money to spend. Are you saying that parliamentarians will ignore this request or, so to speak, ban by the president for members of parliament to go abroad? I'm only saying that he does not have that right. 
he doesn't have that legal space to ban it because parliament is independent. If anybody would respect that kind of decree, it would be an action of surrender. The next decree would be that parliament has no power to look into his expenditures and expenditures of state house and also of the president. He is making an invitation to parliament uh, to say that he can order parliament on what to do, which I reject. MPs were banned from traveling abroad in 2017. MPs ignored and then voted for 420 billion shillings for trips. Will this follow the same suit? What needs to be aligned is the purpose of travel. As long as the purpose of travel is purposeful, there's no reason why members of parliament as leaders, because members of parliament are not ordinary people. Members of parliament are, are critical citizens. They participate in oversight. They participate in aligning government. And therefore, part of their travel is oversight, but in some cases is learning. And uh, therefore, nobody should have a right uh, on their own to say, I have stopped it by decree. And it must be purposeful and well aligned to the availability of resources, should be aligned to um, what will be achieved in the long term and the short term. For those Ugandans who are saying that the request or the ban by the president is reasonable because it will save the government a lot of money in order to channel it to uh, priority areas that will benefit the entire population in Uganda. How do you respond to that? The citizens are desperate. The citizens are dispirited. The citizens don't have the right information. The right information is that Genom Seven and his cronies spend much more money on patronage than that. They spend all more money on classifieds and bribery than that. And therefore, members of parliament, for anybody to try to curtail their power to exercise oversight in one way or another, will be empowering Genom Seven to continue abusing the budget. And this I reject. And so will there be a legal challenge since you said the president does not have the constitutional mandate to stop another branch of government from carrying out its duties? including this ban that he has imposed? That is my position. This is the position I'll sell to colleagues in the opposition and members of parliament because we talked about the legality of the decree. That was Matthias Mpuga, leader of the opposition in Uganda's parliament. He spoke with viewers Peter Klotti from the capital, Kampala. 25 members of Zimbabwe's opposition Citizens Coalition for Change appeared in court on Monday on charges of holding an illegal meeting on Saturday that police broke up with tear gas. The party accused the government of repression ahead of this year's general election, as Columbus Mavunga reports from Harare. Those are 25 members of Zimbabwe's main opposition party, the Citizens' Coalition for Change, arriving at the Harare Magistrate Court on Monday, accompanied by police. Among them is Amos Shibayam, a member of parliament. He talked briefly to journalists before going into the court. He says this will end. It's just harassment. It will come to an end. The dictator will go, he says. The people of Zimbabwe are going to free themselves. Fadzaima, a spokesperson for the Citizens Coalition for Change, or Triple C, says party members were treated badly by police during the arrest. Among those arrested is a little girl, a minor child under 18, she says. There were complaints that some ladies 
were molested by police, which is not allowed by the law. We also heard that the arresting police were drunk and threw alcohol at the arrested people she is. This is not about arresting people we have committed a crime, she says. It's persecution or inflicting pain on triple C people because ZANU-PF is afraid of losing the coming elections. This year, Zimbabwe is supposed to hold general elections. The exact date has yet to be announced. The ruling ZANU-PF party and police refused to comment on the accusations when VOA reached out to them for comment, saying the matter was now before the courts. Master Yokai Zuda has ordered prosecutors Pardon Ziva and Zebed Yabofu to investigate the complaints which Triple C members raised against the police. Meanwhile, the 25 opposition members will be back in court Tuesday applying for bail, which the state is opposed to granting. Columbus Mavungam for VOA News, Arare, Zimbabwe. Authorities in the Greater Pibo administrative area of South Sudan say more than 20 people were killed and dozens of others wounded over the weekend following an attack by armed men wearing Ethiopian police uniforms in Nyad. A local official has accused Ethiopian security forces of involvement in South Sudan's intercommunal fighting. For VOA News, Mayang David Mayar reports from Juba. Raised by phone from Pibor, Abraham Kelang, the information minister for the Greater Pibor administrative area, says the assailants attacked village of Nyat Hell Saturday, killing at least 23 people. <laughs> The attack happened at a place near the wildlife force. They killed nine people from the local community, two women and three children, and they wounded 11 people, including women and children. 500 people have been displaced to the headquarters of the county, which is Jebel Boma County. Kilang says 14 attackers were also killed during the fighting. He says some of the assailants were wearing uniforms, identified as that of the Ethiopian National Police. The government of Greater Pibor administrative area is raising this concern to the national government to tell us why Anyuak and Nuer of Ethiopia are interfering in an internal conflict in South Sudan and that its chief administrator, Lukali Amir, has gone to Juba to meet with officials in the national government. South Sudan in focus tried contacting the Ethiopian embassy in Juba without success as the ambassador is said to have traveled to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. A political affairs officer at the embassy declined to comment, saying she is not authorized to speak to the media. In April 2016, the Ethiopian government says at least 208 people were killed when the Murule from the Greater Pibor administrative area allegedly attacked villages in Ethiopia and abducted at least 125 children and 2,000 cattle. Since then, cross-border attacks have continued between communities along the border between South Sudan and Ethiopia. In March last year, Ethiopian ambassador to South Sudan, Nabil Mahadi, called for an end to the cross-border attacks. Kelang says since that time, 
There have been fewer attacks by the Murule in South Sudan. The youth of Pibor have continued to have some clashes with other youths from other South Sudanese communities, Nuer and Denka, who are in this country. And these are some of the many issues we are working on. We are working hard to stop these clashes between the youths. Last month, youth from parts of Jongle State attacked villages in Greater Pibor administrative area killing and wounding an unspecified number of people and abducting dozens of women and children. Nicholas Asum, a special representative of the United Nations Secretary General and head of the UN mission in South Sudan, says the mission helped rescue 68 children and women who were abducted during the clashes. Asum says intercommunal violence poses a threat not only to the livelihoods of South Sudanese, but could derail the implementation of the 2018 peace deal. For VOA News, I'm Anyang David Mayor in Juba. And that's it for this Tuesday, January 17th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barty in Washington, wishing you will have an amazing Two